It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we report on the latest developments on the front line, including news that a British Challenger 2 tank has been seen on the battlefield for the first time and the fast-moving announcements coming out of the Ukraine Recovery Conference here in London. Plus, we talk again to the founder of Vans Without Borders about their latest work in Ukraine, delivering aid and documenting life for civilians behind the front lines. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 21st of June, one year and 117 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Genevieve Hall-Allen from our foreign desk, David Knowles on the ground in Ukraine, and Jack Ross from Vans Without Borders. I started, however, with the major updates from the military and political spheres. Offensive operations are continuing in at least two sections of the front. That's according to observers and the Institute for the Study of War. The Ukrainian general staff report that their forces continue offensive operations on the border between Zaporizhia and Donetsk oblasts and in western Zaporizhia oblast. A spokesman this morning said that Ukrainian forces are gaining some ground towards Bodyansk and Melitopol. Interestingly, British Challenger 2 tanks have also been seen on the battlefield for the first time after arriving in the country at the end of March. Footage released by the Ukrainian 11th Separate Army Aviation Brigade showed one of the 14 Challenger 2s joining a number of German-made Leopard 2 armoured vehicles already on the battlefield. The Russian Ministry of Defence has stated that their eastern grouping of forces successfully repelled four Ukrainian attacks near Orhiv in Zaporizhia Oblast and in western Donetsk. Ukraine's Deputy Defence Minister has confirmed that Russian forces are deploying significant resources to halt Ukrainian advances, but she added that ongoing Ukrainian operations have objectives beyond territorial liberation and that the main phase of counteroffensive operations has yet to commence. Now, in an interview with the BBC prior to the Ukraine recovery conference in London starting today, which we'll come to in a moment, President Zelensky has acknowledged battlefield progress has been slower than desired. Quote, some people believe this is a Hollywood movie and expect results now. It's not. What's at stake is people's lives. And he again made the case for Ukraine to receive US-made F-16s and said he believed that the fighter pilots would start training as soon as August and the jets could arrive in six or seven months' time. Now, on this theme, the BBC has also published a very interesting and vivid piece from Quentin Somerville on the front line with the 68th Jaeger Brigade in the recently regained village of Blachardonatny. He writes how roses are in bloom, but the smell of corpses catches the back of your throat. And from what he can see, the counteroffensive is made more difficult because of the lack of Ukrainian air power. And he quotes from a soldier who says, whilst they're being shot at, Russian helicopters, Russian jets firing at us every area, every day. And indeed, we reported how Zelensky did warn that many Ukrainian lives would be lost due to air superiority. And so it's proved in the brigade that Mr. Somerville is embedded with, they've suffered very heavy losses as a result. The sergeant says the last week has been extremely difficult. We've lost a large number of our people. Mr. Somerville says, 
On his head, the sergeant wears a ballistic helmet, a size too small. I mention it, and he starts to weep. It was my son's, he says. He was killed in a drone strike, not far from where we speak, a couple of days before the counteroffensive began. He'd been in the army one year. A kamikaze drone flew to them and, in fact, hit him directly. It was impossible to recognise him. He was buried in a closed coffin. Now, elsewhere, Russian strikes continue in the environs around Kyiv and Zaporizhia. The general staff of Ukraine report that Russian forces launched 35 Shahid drones, seven S-300 missiles and one Iskander-M missile targeting civilian infrastructure facilities and that Ukrainian forces shot down 32 drones. I should emphasise this has not been independently verified, but we have seen similar attacks in recent weeks, almost daily, so it would come as no surprise if they are taking place. Now, I mentioned President Zelensky's interview prior to the Ukraine Recovery Conference, co-hosted by the Ukrainian and British governments here in London. This is the big story of the day, and it's been extraordinary seeing the list of commitments made to the reconstruction of the country. Interestingly, in that same interview I referenced a moment ago, uh, he said the support needed was not just for the recovery, but for the transformation of Ukraine as well. He said quick steps to be done immediately included finding places for people to live and rebuilding the destroyed Kohovka Dam and decentralised energy network. But, and I'm quoting from him now, on the larger scale, we are speaking about the transformation of our country. This is Ukraine not only with its energy and agriculture, and industrial complexes, but with its reforms that we can see. And he then spoke about the digitisation of the country as well as judicial and anti-corruption reforms. I think that's a very important point that he's making here. And this is something the Ukrainians have been very good at articulating, I think, is why they, that this war is now a catalyst for transforming the country and throwing off the shackles of Russian influence, which has, of course, plagued them for a very long time. Now, I'll come to Genevieve in a moment, who is following all of this for us on our Ukraine Live blog. This is very much an evolving story. More than 1,000 foreign officials from over 60 states, along with bis- business chiefs and global investors, are there. In March, regular listeners will recall the World Bank estimated that Ukraine's post-war reconstruction would cost roughly $411 billion, a figure which will unfortunately have increased significantly in the wake of the destruction of the dam. Now, as part of the litany of announcements, we've seen the European Union's chief executive, Ursula von der Leyen, unveil an aid package for Ukraine worth 50 billion euros. That was yesterday as they reviewed the bloc's 2021-27 budget ahead of the conference. On top of that, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who's just arrived in London after meeting President Xi, of course, has said that he would set out a new assistance package for Ukraine aimed at encouraging private companies to invest in the country's reconstruction after after the invasion. He said, we will. We said we would stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes and both of our countries, to which he's referencing the United Kingdom, are deeply committed to that. And he was speaking alongside the British Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly. Britain too has set out a major package of financial support, including $3 billion of World Bank loan guarantees and has also announced that it will keep sanctions against Russia in place until the Kremlin has compensated Ukraine for the destruction it has caused under new legislation introduced by the government. These are a raft of measures to tighten the sanctions regime, which will also create a route for sanctioned individuals to, quote, do the right thing by voluntarily donating frozen assets to a Ukrainian recovery fund. Of course, Britain has frozen more than £18 billion in assets and sanctioned more than 1,500 individuals since the war began, including senior government and military officials from Russia, as well as prominent billionaires such as Roman Abranovich. I think this is going to be a core theme of this conference is using these seized assets to try and fund the reconstruction efforts and holding Russia accountable. accountable. As I say, the British stance there, I think, is particularly strong, stronger than many have uh, made commitments about so far. And so it'll be very interesting monitoring the tone around this. Now, lastly, regular listeners will recall that the Finnish Prime Minister, Brit Sanna Marin, or former, should I say, 
she was one of the most vocal supporters of Ukraine, of course, was ousted from power back in April. And it led some to speculate that the impact would be potentially significant on the Finnish position. My view was that it would change little. And in fact, there have been some interesting announcements made there following the countries joining NATO that would seem to tally with that view. Mr. Orpo, leader of the main centre-right party, was sworn in as prime minister on Tuesday at the helm of a coalition. And whilst it marks a step to the right on economic and social questions with a mandate to rein in public spending. Its enthusiasm for NATO membership and its support for Ukraine remain undimmed. Indeed, the government has said it will cut overseas aid payments to states that support Russia's attack on Ukraine while limiting immigration and making it much harder for foreign nationals in those countries to obtain residency or citizen rights. And I think this is a clear warning to African nations who are receiving support from the Finnish government. At last, it seems, the West is seeking to leverage its economic power to try and sway those countries who are more ambiguous towards which side they support in this war. So that's the military situation and the top line so far from the recovery conference, though there are some other notable updates later on, including remarks from Joe Biden regarding Putin's nuclear threats, which we'll come to later. But first, I want to turn to Genevieve, who's been following the conference closely. Genevieve, what's your sense following this? It feels like a very symbolic event. Looking at the list of pledges to come out just from the first day of this conference in London, it does seem a pretty significant moment. I mean, the UK ambassador to Ukraine, Melinda Simmons, posted on Twitter earlier today to say, to be honest, it's a bit emotional listening to world leaders talk in detail and with commitment about the rebuilding of Ukraine. It is such a tribute to Ukrainian resilience and to values all these countries represented. Um, And uh, President Zelensky obviously spoke at the opening of this conference, as did Rishi Sunak. And President Zelensky, once he finished speaking at the conference, released a statement on Twitter saying, Ukraine has succeeded in making the EU as united as it has never been before. This is truly a unity of values, which is reflected in many political, economic, sanction and humanitarian decisions. Ukraine has activated all that power of solidarity for which the EU was conceived. And Ukraine is also activating the moral force of NATO. This is Zelensky. uh, He continues, this is important for all of us. What does the world see now? Does it recognise NATO's moral leadership in protecting peace? This is only possible with Ukraine in the alliance. Now, as part of of this huge conference, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has announced a new framework for war risk insurance aimed at helping businesses invest in Ukraine. Um, He said at the opening of the conference in London, this is a huge step forward towards helping insurers to underwrite investments into Ukraine, removing one of the biggest barriers and giving investors the confidence they need to act. There aren't significant amounts of details about this at this stage, but this has just been announced. Um, This has come alongside France's foreign minister, Catherine Colonna, who has also set out a new war insurance mechanism to support recovery in Ukraine. Speaking at the conference, she said, I'm announcing today the establishment of an insurance mechanism to cover investments in Ukraine against war-related risks via the French Public Investment Bank. And she added that this plan from the French government would be, and I quote, consistent with that proposed by Rishi Sunak. So yes, there's a lot happening and a lot of, it looks like quite coordinated responses from allies here. And I'll be heading back to the desk shortly to continue that coverage. I understand that Moscow is kicking up a fuss over the grain deal again. Yes, indeed. The Kremlin has reiterated once more that it considers there to be no grounds, I quote, no grounds to extend the Black Sea grain deal as it claims that the accord is not being properly implemented. Uh, Dmitry Peskov told reporters on a call that the UN had been forced to acknowledge that And he said, unfortunately, they are not managing to exert the necessary influence on the countries of the collective West in order to fill this Russian part of the agreement. Now, what Mr. Peskov is referring to here is Russia's repeated demands to remove what it describes as obstacles to the exports of its own grain and fertilisers. 
Um, evidently, Moscow does not think that it has received uh, these concessions as part of the renewal uh, as they continue to seek leverage um, and continue to threaten to pull out. Thanks. Yes, I think there's a lesson here regarding Russian threats. They huff and they puff, but they actually do very little. And perhaps there are implications there for other demands from Moscow. One final story, if I may, and this is an update on the death toll following the destruction of the dam. What are you hearing? Yes, sadly, the toll from the flooding following the breach of the dam has risen to 41 in areas under Russian control, according to official Andrei Alexienko, um, a senior official with the Russian occupation authorities. Um, he said on Wednesday, unfortunately, the number of dead has risen In areas under Ukrainian control, at least 16 people have died and 31 people are missing. This dam breach on June the 6th caused flooding uh, in huge swathes of the Kurzon region and forced thousands to flee. And I don't think that will be the last that we hear, sadly, about damage to the area and, and people's lives as a result of this breach. Thanks, Genevieve. I appreciate you coming over on such a busy day. For listeners wondering where Dom is, he's currently giving evidence to the House of Commons Defence Select Committee, who periodically ask for expert advice on military matters. He does know his onions after all. But now let's go to David Knowles in Ukraine. David, hopefully you can hear me. What have you been up to since the podcast yesterday? Just on a bit of a, uh, well, a fascinating reporting trip down to one of the suburbs in the south. I was with Angelica Kababi from the U-Hearts Foundation, who's showing me around um, the Patron Centre. If you remember Patron, the famous mind-clearing dog uh, that even um, was recognised by Zelensky. Their, their centre, they have a new centre down in one of the southern suburbs of Kiev, And it's where they're rehabilitating cats and dogs and, and pets that they've, at the moment, that, that they've rescued from Herzon region after the flooding. And it's quite interesting, I think, what Genevieve said. I, I could catch snatches of her reporting um, while in the cab. But... Um, I think it's really, really important to impress upon listeners the absolute devastation of this flooding and how, and how this is going to be a story that's going to continue on for weeks, months and years. I mean, earlier today, I was speaking to some other volunteers, a pair of British volunteers um, doing different things, but sort of everybody knows knows each other. Um, Felicity Spector, well, we'll come on to her. She's, she's been on the podcast before, but a new guy I hadn't spoken to before called um, Edward Matthews, who's a photographer and a volunteer here in Ukraine. And he was, he's been down in Herson as well, assisting with some of the emergency flood relief. And he was talking about how um, really, you know, this this absolute environmental catastrophe will have implications, will have will, will create problems for the region for, for decades, um, specifically on the issue of floating ordnance. And you know, essentially, these stockpiles of um, ammunition on both, on both banks of the Dnipro and mines and so on and so forth that have been swept up by the fast-moving floodwaters. That, and that now, nobody knows where they are. And surveying that, discovering where they are, dealing with them, trying to work out what's happened, is going to be the work of tens of years. Uh, and that, that's something coming from some of the volunteers and some of the, you know, the expert volunteers working in that sector um, down right now in Hassan. So I think that's important to mention because my, my sense is that quite a lot of the media, if not moving on from the Hassan flooding, is, is treating it as just another story. And really, when you're here, you see the amount of aid and the amount of thinking and concern for what's happened um, and all the stories coming out of the region. It's the biggest story of the past month. And it's in some ways only going to get worse and it's and it's going to take so much time to resolve. So yes, back to this morning. After, after seeing um, Ed and Felicity, um, Felicity is, is here with uh, the Bake for Ukraine. So she works with a lot of uh, mobile bakeries. So there's lots of, reg- lots of places in the recently deoccupied parts of Ukraine in the south and in the east where, you know, lots of shops, restaurants have all been destroyed, uh, supermarkets as well. So it's very difficult to get some daily staples. And the Bake for Ukraine uh, people have these mobile bakeries where they can sort of give away uh, bread and pastries and that sort of thing. So she's working there and do check them out. They're doing some very interesting stuff. They've just taken delivery of a new mobile bakery in, uh, I believe, down south in in Odessa. But then we went to the Patron uh, Center's new, well, it's a sort of giant warehouse. And in this warehouse, They've got around, I would say, 70 to 80 little compartments, little wooden compartments with glass doors, which have air conditioning, heating, and it's where they are starting to rehabilitate some of the animals, some of the pets that have been uh, rescued from Herson. And it's, it's a really incredible place because half of it is sort of built already and you can see, you know, we were looking in on all these windows and you can see puppies and kittens and, you know, the, their, their, and their families just sort of asleep. And you can hear on the other end of the warehouse, you can hear some of the really traumatized animals um, who sort of, you know, barking and reacting at the slightest sound we were making. 
And what the center's goal is, is to try and make sure, A, these animals are coming in healthy, and if not, they'll vaccinate them, they'll, make, they'll sort of look at them medically, and then to start the long and sometimes really painful process of trying to rehabilitate them to society. And it's, an, it's a really important point, because when we talk about trauma, I think we've got a, a decent understanding of what people go through when they're subjected to a year and a half and more of invasion and war and shelling and bombing. And, but of course, all of that impacts on all the environment. On, we had Sasha Dovchik talking about ecocide and the impacts on the flora of, of Ukraine, but also the fauna. We've got to think about the animals as well. I mean, I was walking through this, this warehouse of sort of recently rehabilitated and rescued animals. And you can tell that, you know, some make very good progress. For some, it takes a very long time. Ultimately, the goal there is to get them to families when they're ready. I mean, actually, as we were coming out of the centre and just saying goodbye to Adina, who was showing us around, and that interview will be on this podcast at some point in the next few weeks. As we were coming out, she stopped and said, look, this, is, this, this puppy is being adopted right now. And a lady had come in with her pram and her sort of, I think, quite, quite a young baby, and I think maybe her sister, and was chatting to the people signing the papers and picking up the puppy slowly to make sure it you know, wasn't too scared starting to introduce it to people. It ran up to me as I was recording, so I had to do that bit again. It's very cute. But it's a good example of how all of this, I mean, what they were saying to me, what they'd explained was they, they wanted to do this, and this was a plan, and then her son happened, and everything had to be just, had to, it wasn't a plan for you know, the end of the summer or August, it just had to happen now, because the scale of the disaster in her son, we've already seen footage, and I've heard from quite a few volunteers, actually, that part of the reason you know, the floodwater itself is so dangerous is because lots of pets drowned. And, the, you know, their, their bodies in the water add to this sort of ma- the miasma of disease there. Um, so, so they opened up, you know, two months early, scrabbling about for funds, building. You know, I was sort of stepping over the building materials um, of, these, of these pods for the animals, these rehabilitation pods for the animals. Um, and it's just an incredible effort. I mean, we were talking to Irina. She's an, an actress and is now almost volunteering full time for, for this centre. And it was just very, very interesting to see how it had been spun up so quickly and how, there were several vets on site sort of walking around, checking in on the animals. There's an animal psychologist sort of walking around and, and checking in as well. It was, it was a really incredible thing to see, and especially because it's only been there for a couple of weeks. It was already fully functioning. Already, I think they said they had seven dogs uh, yesterday had been rehabilitated and been sent to a new home. Um, and just the absolute speed of it was, was quite something. So it's, been, it's, it's actually been a sort of action-packed day today. I'm um, seeing quite a few people um, just outside the Tower Shevchenko Museum because we're going to go in there and speak to Lyubov, the, the, the curator who I interviewed several months ago about uh, the great Ukrainian poet, catch up with her and see how the museum has been dealing with, with the past few months. Um, and then I think, finally, I might have to get my bags and head to the station for the night train. But today and yesterday have been really beautiful days, really, really interesting. So have you got any general reflections on, on how you found the trip? Yeah, I mean, I think it's too soon maybe to draw massive conclusions. I sort of want to let quite a lot of it settle and sift over it in my head. But one thing I would say is something my friend Anna said yesterday, that within, in Ukraine there's, there's worlds within worlds. There's so much going on. There's so many different places. A multitude of stories, of histories, of different politics, of different culture. Everywhere I've been in the past 10 days, even the most the briefest glance out of the window, I've seen something and thought, oh, that's interesting. Should try, try and come back to that at some point. And I think I've got a list, you know, 200 long, of the things we'd like to talk about. And it made me think a little bit about what the point of this podcast is. I mean, simply, it's obviously to um, record and report on what's happening in this war. But the only way we can do that is if we see Ukraine for the, the multitude of of histories and overlapping identities and etc. That that it is, and to be honest, the more the more I try and do that, the the more complex it it becomes, and the, the more obvious it is that there's so many stories that we'd love to touch on and we'd love to do. And the only way to do that is be here and, and speak to people. Uh, it make me it makes me think a little bit of you know those sort of those incredible photos you see of that the Hubble telescope produced, and you know the early ones you see maybe twenty stars and you can point at them and say what they are, and then you see another one of the same point in the night sky and there are a thousand galaxies. It's felt a bit like that. There's so much I want to cover. There's so many more people we want to speak to, and we won't get the chance. Um, but it, it's a, potentially a lesson for us to, you know, we should always stay slightly humble in, in front of such such multitudes that we want to that we want to talk about and want to cover. I mean, even you know something like this, the Patreon Center. It's just one story in a, a sea of stories, and it was very interesting seeing it. It's going to be very interesting following their progress, seeing if they can raise the money they need to continue the rehabilitation and the work they do. Going down, you know, if you think about um, the scene in Lviv, which is vibrant and loud and there's musicians on every corner 
restaurants are full, bars are full. And, and you do see people obviously in military fatigues walking around. And of course, you know, when we arrived, there was an air raid siren. And I know a couple of days ago, was it yesterday, there was a, a big attack on, on Lviv as well. And then you compare that to some of the village, the eerie ghost villages we drove through in uh, Kharkiv and in Donetsk. And, you know, completely empty, not a single roof on a single house, no people around, nothing functioning, everything just destroyed. And both of those stories need to be told. Uh, not just one, not just the other, of course. And there's just, and you go to Kramatorsk, if you think about Kramatorsk, one of the real hot frontline cities at the moment, military personnel everywhere, the train full of military heading back to Kiev for time off or for training or for something else. And contrast that with arriving in Kiev and you know, having cocktails last night. There's so many stories and they all overlap. And the thread that runs through them, I think, in the past year and a half of the war is that the war in some ways has impacted everyone. And our job is to try and understand how that's so and what that means and not to sort of go on, but it's felt like an absolute privilege to come here with a microphone just to walk up to people and walk up to things and say, you know, what's that? What's going on here? Can you tell me about that? What, how's that? That's interesting. Tell me more. Just, just to try and give myself a sense and all of you listeners a sense of what the stories here are. Thanks, David. I know you have to dash off. So have safe travels. And of course, we will catch up with you when you're back, I believe, on Friday. Next, though, it's great to welcome back to the podcast 25-year-old Jack Ross from the humanitarian organisation Vans Without Borders. Jack, many people will remember our interview from several months ago. Since then, your video series for The Telegraph, Life on the Front Line, has won several awards and your work for the humanitarian organisation has expanded considerably. Perhaps you can remind people of your work in Ukraine and what you've been doing since we last spoke. Yeah, of course, Francis. Thank you very much for having me on again. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. And I'd just firstly like to say thank you to everyone and all of your listeners who um, donated last time. We raised around £10,000 after the last podcast. So huge thank you to you, Francis, and the whole team and all the listeners who, were, who made that possible. So with that money, we were able to go over to Ukraine in January, March, and um, for big trips, as well as running aid over in the sort of intermediate periods. And we've set up our organization. So when our main team's not in the country, we work with Ukrainian partners who use our vehicles um, and we help support and supply aid to. So we constantly have a stream of aid going into certain areas. After we last spoke, um, I went over to Ukraine again towards the end of January. And we helped down in Kramatorsk and around there. And it was very interesting to see the way in which the landscape had changed. So we went to some villages we'd previously helped in November, um, which in November were pretty destitute and empty. And now they were kind of thriving hubs where the Ukrainians had pushed the Russian front line back. But we were still finding pockets of places where we went to one area and there was a crater in the middle of this small town with your classic Stalinist Soviet blocks around it. And it was completely empty. We pulled up our vehicles and people began emerging from the basements and what remained of their homes. And there was about 30, 40 people still living here. And they told us no one had come to help them before. They were completely on their own. And this is, you know, almost a year into the war um, that these people still hadn't received any help um, because there's so many people and not everyone is aware of where all these pockets of people are because there are so many small towns and villages and settlements. So we were able to give them food and it was quite a sad experience for all of us because these these people came out and it was cold for us. It was probably about minus eight, minus nine at the time. And we were freezing. We could barely last outside giving out aid. And these people were living in uninsulated basements and makeshift shacks. They were pumping water out of a storm drain to get to get water to the area. They didn't have vehicles. They had no oil or heating. And so what they were doing is they were chopping up logs and burning them to try and create hot water for what few kind of pipes or whatever remained. It was quite a, a really sad situation, one of the saddest I've seen. And the worst part is it's not just old people there. There were families there with young kids. So you're talking two, three-year-olds still living in those conditions. But since then, we also went out again in March. And, and um, the main effort of that mission is we've been bumping into a guy with Down syndrome in Kramatorsk begging. So he'd been outside one of the supermarkets the last three or four times I've been to the city, sat on cardboard. And every time we saw him, he was in the same clothes, but he was getting dirtier and dirtier. And each time we'd buy him some supplies and food. And why we went back is I've done a fundraiser in the UK. We raised £3,000 to help him. 
and we ended up doing a welfare check. So we worked with a Ukrainian um, dance and drone charity to carry out a welfare check, find out a bit more about Sasha, um, who's the individual. And we learned he's a 42-year-old. He lives with a very elderly mum in a flat and with sort of other relatives all jammed in there. But no one can really work because there's no jobs. And he wasn't able to get a job because um, there were no employment opportunities for someone with Down syndrome in Kramatorsk. So he was out there begging. Um, and so we ended up, we had, had a look and we had some photos sent to us of what his flat looked like after this welfare check. So we fundraised and raised money to buy his family a sofa bed for him and another bed, as well as some other furniture, food supplies, <laughs> almost like a year's worth of coffee, that kind of thing. Um to try and help them out as much as possible. And so that was really rewarding for us because while we do help loads of people and we've helped thousands of people since the start of the war, it's the little stories like that and um, the, the helping one individual, but in a way where you know he's going to be set up for life. Because before we went to help, the family was sleeping on the floor. Um, they didn't really have enough money for food. Um, they didn't have enough money to put the washing machine on. Um, so that's why all of their clothes were dirty and everything. And it was quite a quite a sad situation, but it was great to go over and help. And since then, we've still been running aid over um, and getting it distributed in, in different ways. Thanks, Jack. And I know you're very well connected with lots of other aid workers out there. What intelligence are you getting from them on the ground at the moment? So interestingly, it is all about her son at the moment with the dam being blown up. But it's I'm, I'm getting mixed messages because some of my friends are out there. They're out there on boats and they're helping people very dangerous thing to do. I know of one group where a humanitarian worker was killed, one was shot shot in the chest, and um, uh, another chap was injured while dropping off aid because people, it's not clear for a lot of people or simply they just don't care where the Russian lines are and where the Ukrainian lines are. So a lot of people are trying to do extractions or drop off aid to Russian-controlled areas, and they're being treated as legitimate targets by the Russian army, and they're facing some severe consequences. And then the other thing you've also got where there's a lack of communication between the aid groups, particularly the large aid groups in Herson, because we've been told by a friend who's been told by the military administration that there's currently more humanitarian workers there than there are people. And so what's happening is there's an abundance of aid and it's starting to pile up on the sides of the road where they haven't got enough space to store it um, and they haven't got enough people who need it in the city. Um, what my friends are doing over there is they're targeting the um, and our, our team. They're targeting villages outside of Herson, so areas which are still affected by the flooding, but it's not it, it's not where the media hotspots are, where people are taking their photo to say, "Look where I've dropped off." These are places where, like what I spoke uh, spoke earlier about the isolated town in the Donbass, these are areas which receive little to no help. Um, the people are completely cut off. They're essentially penniless you know we talk to some of these people and their only income will be something like 60 dollars state pension a month which is you know heartbreaking so we do what we can to try and get get the message out that people shouldn't just go where the media shines a light on they should be looking actually at the wider areas as well to help those in need where they might not get as much accolade for doing it they might not get as much media attention but actually they'll be doing a much more important job because they'll be getting it to people who are literally penniless and have you sensed it's becoming harder to fundraise for Ukraine the longer this war is going on? I think so, definitely. At the start, it was very easy. I was actually surprised about how, how easy it was in terms of fundraising. So obviously, it just happened and we raised a lot of money quite quickly last year. Uh, we still do have funds and we still do have some very loyal supporters. But I know certainly with some other groups, they're finding it really tough. We're seeing cases where people have collected a large amount of aid, but they don't have the money to... Um, take it over to Ukraine because an average trip for say a van or um, light goods vehicle is about one and a half thousand pounds just to go to Ukraine and back and that's on transporting it you can't really post it because there's restrictions on what you can take in but it is a big cost to humanitarian aid and so what what we're trying to do at the moment is work with some logistics companies where we can agree a price on moving say 20 tons or 25 tons at a time um, with heavy goods vehicles and get that dropped in. So we're then only worrying about cost of moving it from within Ukraine rather than bringing it over as well. And we think that will work with a lot of groups who have all this aid but can't afford to take it over. And we've seen similar cases in Poland, similar cases in Ukraine as well, where a lot of people dropped aid in Lviv, for example. And now Lviv's chock-a-block with aid, 
but people haven't got the money. The Ukrainians don't have the money to move it around the country because it does does cost money. Um, and that's the thing with aid. It's it, literally everything is if you go and drop off, um, say, a box of clothes to a humanitarian hub in Britain, it does cost money to take it from A to B and actually quite a, quite a lot of money. Interesting. Thank you, Jack. And I understand you also interviewed some Russian prisoners of war recently. What was the context of that and, and what was it like? Well, I've been very fortunate. Uh, my friends in the Ukrainian army have arranged for me to, or had arranged for me to interview three Russian prisoners of war. So there was one chap from the Luhansk uh, People's Republic, and he's a very was a very interesting situation. So he genuinely believed the Ukrainians were still the bad guys. But I believe the quote that he said was, "The Ukrainians are fascists, but I was rescued by fascists, so they're not bad guys." And this guy had been abandoned by his teammates. He was in a in a bunker, um, and his squad had left him. Um, the bunker had been blown up on top of him. The Ukrainians actually dug him out um, while they were clearing the bunker to check for munitions. And so this guy had been severely frostbitten, and he was just surprised at the treat- treatment that he'd had from the Ukrainians, where they'd given him painkillers, given him uh, emergency medical treatment, were planning to move him to a hospital. And you could tell in his eyes he was still uh, upset with Ukraine. And he even said to himself he used to believe about... 50% of um, Russian propaganda. Now he only believes about 10%. So you can start to see where he is waking up to the fact that he was being treated better as a prisoner of war than he had been treated in the Russian army because he'd been trying to get a medical discharge because he had cancer, but the Russian army had refused refused him that chance to leave the Russian army. Uh, another chap we interviewed was a guy from the Luhansk People's Republic. And I interviewed him while he was in hospital because he'd been shot in the arm by the Ukrainians um, actually, as I went in, the Ukrainian soldiers said to me, uh, he, is, he is a Russian, but he is a good boy. And um, we ended up speaking to him. We found out why. Um, and that was because he'd actually been in the army before the war. During the war, he tried to leave the army, but they threatened to kill his family or arrest his family when he said he wanted to leave. And so he said the best thing for him was actually being shot in the arm because he said he was worried he was going to be killed because the Russian army is so poorly equ- equipped uh, and he was part of the Donetsk um, People's Republic, sorry, not the Luhansk People's Republic, and they hadn't really had any proper training. And, you know, he was quite happy in his hospital bed. And he said he's really grateful he's off the front line. Then the third chap I interviewed was a um, soldier from the Wagner Group. He was a prisoner from Siberia, and he'd been recruited into Wagner. Um, he He says he was in prison for drug dealing, which he denies, and he was, uh, I believe it was nine years, out of a 12-year sentence when he decided to join the Wagner group because they came around the prisons. Um, But again, he said they received very little training. Um, You know, it were treated very poorly. um, And actually, he was quite grateful to be captured. And then it turned out that he was... And this is fascinating. He was actually, when he was in prison, he used to write anti-Putin poetry. So he was someone who was staunchly anti-Putin, but the Russian army was so desperate for conscripts They'd actually still snapped him up and put him, put him on the front line. And it goes to show out of all the three people I interviewed, obviously you have to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt because they might be thinking, oh, I'm just going to say what he wants to hear. But as I said, actually talking to them and looking in their eyes, they all did look like they were telling the truth, um, particularly as well because I did get varied responses um, from them. And so it, it's just fascinating to see that there doesn't really seem to be that many people on the front line who are supporting Russia. And it does explain why they have to implement such strong measures for those who are trying to desert or shooting people who won't advance using very Soviet tactics to instill fear, fear in the men that are fighting for them because they just simply don't want to be there. They'd rather be at home with their families and they're very disenfranchised with the Russian state. Well, you've sort of answered my question, Jack, which is how reliable did you feel or do you feel that the testimony you received from them is, was? Um, I mean, did you did you get a sense that you were being allowed to see these individuals because they were the sort of individuals that the Ukrainians wanted you to see? Or do you think there was a little bit more of a spontaneity about it? So I think what worked well is all of the guys I interviewed, it had been less than a week after they were captured. Um, so they were a complete random cross-section of um, individuals. And we were able to get access to them simply because we were there at the right time at the right place um, because we work with frontline units. Um, they give us security when we go out and drop aid or they let us know which areas are safe. Um, and they let us know that 
you know, if a unit, a few buildings down has captured someone and they'd be up for an interview because they know that it helps us with our awareness work in the UK and also with our fundraising in terms of showcasing the charity work that we do when we combine it in a video. Um, so they were very happy for us to see these people. I don't get that there was any malice because it's like with the third one, the Wagner prisoner, um, there wasn't even a soldier in the room with us at the time. They just said, you can interview him, crack on. Um, in the hospital, the soldiers waited outside and it was only the first one there were soldiers present when we were there. But that's because he literally, it was the morning after he'd been captured and he was actually staying in the same quarters as the soldiers and he had to have a guard on him because they you know, don't put people in cells and everything as such. It's more informal at that point before they get moved into the POW system. So what's next for you? When are you next going back to Ukraine and what are your intentions? So we're next going back in July. Um, it's very hard to actually plan what to do because it everything changes all the time as is the nature of the beast. Like, for example, today, the place we normally stay in in Ukraine, I've just got a message that a couple of weeks ago that a Shahid drone actually hit the building we normally stay in. So we can't go back back there, unfortunately. Luckily, no one was killed. But it's obviously unfortunate for the people who are hosting us and the people there because, again, their life savings, their building, which they've invested their flats, they've invested their money in, have just been you know, wiped out as such. So we'll be looking for a new base of operations. Um, we're also looking to, as I said, get to the villages which no one else goes to, certainly around Kherson. We'll probably be back in the Donbass as well, maybe go up to Sumy. Um, and we'll be looking at where there is a real need for aid and working with local contacts to try and find out where we can drop our stuff up to. Um, you know, we hear all sorts of stories. So I'm really keen to go to a village um, where we heard a, heard um, an update from it where one of our friends over there gave some of our aid um, to a commander, some sleeping bags for his unit. And um, we, we spoke um, with the friend and the commander was apparently very upset because he'd just come back from a village uh, where they'd liberated one village and the commander had gone in with the sniper team and the villagers told him, you need to go to the neighboring village because the Russians are still there. So the snipers went over and eliminated the Russian soldiers who were there. They went in and they found a nursery building. Um, they went into the basement. There were over 300 people locked in the basement of this nursery building. They'd been uh, piling the dead bodies up at the back of the room where the Russians hadn't been letting them out or feeding them or giving them water. And people had been dying. And so they'd been trying to separate the dead from the living within um, themselves. They went round the back and they found um, a pile of bodies where what the Russians had been doing is they'd been processing people, taking them out one by one. And again, it goes back to six Soviet tactics. They'd been bringing them out as if they were going to release them. And then they'd be shooting them against the wall outside. Um, and it's it's horrifying. The more stories we hear like this... Um, you know, as, as the war goes on. Um, and as I said, these are the villages we want to get to because they're the ones which don't make the news um, because it's, you know, some stories are so upsetting that a lot of media won't, won't print them um, or that people might not want to come forward and talk about them. Uh, but these are the areas we want to go and help and make sure that everyone is able to survive. Everyone has the food they need, the clothing they need, the tools they need to get, get their life back on track. Um, also a big part of what we do, we're trying to do a bit of a, morale booster um, where the war has gone a bit stagnant and people have started to do, lose interest and there is a bit less charity effort in Ukraine. We want to go and um, um, do things like one of our partners in Ukraine has a bouncy castle. So we're going to be taking that to some orphanages. We're going to be taking it to some homes for disabled people. Um, we're going to be bringing a mobile field kitchen to cook hot food for people and do all sorts of little morale boosting activities where it might only be an afternoon, but it will mean the world to so many people whose lives are otherwise actually quite bleak. Thank you, Jack. And I know that there'll be many listeners who will want to learn more about your work. And for them, there will be links in the description for this episode. I'll come back to you in a few minutes for very final thoughts. But first, I did promise a few more important updates that have come in today beyond the recovery conference. So we learned that France is to support Ukraine's bid to one day join NATO in an attempt to pressure Russia into negotiating an end to its war. That's according to French reports. 
For a little bit of context, France and Germany blocked any prospect of Ukraine's rapid ascension to NATO in 2008 against the advice of the United States, which at the time advocated its integration. Emmanuel Macron, French president, stuck to his stance both before and after the start of the Russian invasion last year. He said Ukraine's entry into NATO would be perceived by Russia as something confrontational. You can't imagine it with this kind of Russia. That's what he said to Le Monde in December 2022. However... During a Defence Council meeting at the Elysee on June 12th, we understand now that Mr Macron and his government reconsidered the possibility of Kyiv joining the alliance. They uh, defended that position as a means of influencing the conflict and bringing Moscow and Kyiv to the negotiating table. It's now the approach favoured by the French. So uh, quite a shift this. And I think they consider pushing Ukraine's membership as a security guarantee as its own in its own right, since they believe it would discourage Russia from continuing the war or should the conflict come to an end, prevent any further aggression. By supporting the country's ambitions, France claims it also hopes to convince Zelensky to enter into negotiations when he deems the time is right, depending on the results of the counteroffensive. Again, that's according to reports. This start seems to represent a significant shift for France, moving it closer to Central European countries like Poland and the Baltic states. And interestingly, one foreign diplomat is cited as saying in the reports, the French position is now closer to that of Poland than of Germany. So more on that as we have it. Speaking of Germany, Chancellor Olaf Scholz has called on China to use its influence over Russia more in regards to the war. Speaking yesterday after bilateral talks in the German capital, Mr Scholz also said China should not supply weapons to Russia and that the war in Ukraine should not become a frozen conflict. The meeting in Berlin was the seventh time Germany and China have held high-level government consultations and comes a day after Chinese President Xi Jinping met with US Secretary of State Antony Blinken, indicating an effort by Beijing, it seems, to reach out to the West and improve frosty relations. Germany is very keen to maintain good ties with China, something we've talked about at length in the past. Its biggest trading partner, of course, despite wariness over Beijing's growing assertiveness and refusal to criticise the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Germany recently published its national security strategy, listeners will recall, and in that it described China as a partner, competitor and systemic rival. And quite how one can square those uh, different interpretations of China in one policy, I'm not quite sure. But nonetheless, they are still very much in open dialogues with China. And I would say probably are the strongest, perhaps just uh, in alignment with or um, certainly um, close behind uh, France uh, on terms of the way in which they are dealing with China since the war began. It does feel, though, that some of the alliance's more sceptical partners are beginning to take a more hawkish approach. But words are one thing and actions quite another. Now, the final update I wanted to just mention is one triggering some frustration today, it has to be said, which is the seemingly off-script remarks by President Joe Biden that the threat of Putin using tactical nuclear weapons is real, days after denouncing the Kremlin's deployment of such devices in Belarus. So on Saturday, the US president was calling the Russian counterpart's announcement that Moscow had deployed these weapons to Belarus as absolutely irresponsible. But more recently, in the last couple of days, he said that, and I'm quoting here, when I was out here, and he was speaking in California, I should emphasize, about two years ago, saying I worried about the Colorado River drying up, everybody looked at me like I was crazy. I got similar looks when I said I was worried about Putin using tactical nuclear weapons, but the threat is real. And the reason this is triggering some anger Uh, frustration is that some argue it's rather unhelpful for him to say this publicly, even if he believes it in private. It does strengthen Putin's hand, encouraging him to ramp up the perception he will use these weapons. They are, after all, the key for him. As I've said before, the perception, real or not, that he will use these weapons in what has stopped, in my view, direct military intervention from the West in Ukraine. The spectre of those weapons haunts everything. And until that threat is neutered, we will uh, see, I think, Putin holding this potentially winning card. How does one neuter them? Well, China has to play a key role, as would much greater clarity as to what the consequences of using these weapons would be. Not talking about these things and things one is afraid of always increases the fear of those things themselves.
But that's where we are for the updates. Now it's time for our very final thoughts. So, Jack, take it away. Certainly, I'd say in terms of the nuclear threat you were just talking about, um, I think Putin is highly unlikely to use nuclear weapons, providing the conflict remains in Ukraine. I think that's why the Ukrainians have been so adamant they won't do a major offensive into Russia, because they know the consequences um, of that. The Russians would be entitled in their eyes to use nuclear weapons. I think we shouldn't let the fear of nuclear weapons deter us from helping Ukraine either. I think we should be very firm that we are helping Ukraine. Um, There's a reason everyone has nuclear weapons, because it's mutually assured destruction. Russia would be absolutely suicidal to use them. And I don't think they'd risk widespread damage on their mainland just to try and prove a point over Ukraine. I think certainly we shouldn't be doing anything to escalate nuclear tensions and we shouldn't be threatening things back. But I think we shouldn't let international terrorists dictate our foreign policy. We should be very firm on where we stand on Ukraine. The other thing I would say is get another thank you to all your listeners and yourself um, for doing a fantastic job in terms of promoting awareness in Ukraine. I'd really just implore everyone listening to this to keep standing with Ukraine, keep backing Ukraine. The more we talk about it, the more likely we are to actually reach a positive resolution for Ukraine. What we don't want is everyone kind of loses interest and then Ukraine's forced to accept a rubbish peace deal where they concede a lot of territory. Then in five, ten years, um, the conflict starts up again and the Russians reinvade Ukraine because they can't can't be trusted at all. So we have to stand strong with Ukraine, um, keep a positive view of them in our societies, really push back against the propaganda as well, because there is a mass propaganda effort to try and defame the Ukrainians. And for everyone who says, oh, Ukraine's corrupt, you know, actually their anti-corruption laws are some of the bane of charity workers or humanitarian workers' lives because we have to fill out so many forms and do so much to, in terms of declaring where the aid's going in country to try and tackle the corruption um, and stop any corruption. Actually, I've not seen any evidence while over there of humanitarian aid being used in a corrupt manner and everyone is very, you know, sensible. Um, and I think it's it's a real credit to the Ukrainians that actually importing all of these, you know, must be millions of tons of aid across the board that is not being misplaced and people aren't getting backhanders like what we see in a lot of other countries. And it is all being very amicably done. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear with executive producers David Knowles and Louisa Wells.